Good morning. Before we start, I want to make two quick announcements. I know I should have probably done that earlier, but two quick announcements, and then we'll jump in. Uh, so the first one is, if you came in here and missed a table, there's a table right over there that has notebooks for, for this sermon series. And if you have not grabbed one, uh, go grab one, uh, or have Caleb grab you one or whatever. But it's, uh, it has a schedule for the sermon, and also has, you can take notes. It's just for you, uh, if you are a note taker, right? So that's the first one. Second thing is, uh, you, have may, you may have met a guy by the name of Caleb uh, for the past couple of weeks. Uh, Caleb and Jordan, uh, could you guys come to the front? So Caleb is the new resident here at the town church, and uh, I don't know what's going on there. There shouldn't be a picture of them or anything, so, uh, um, but yeah. So Caleb, Caleb and Jordan, so this is them. There's, I, like I said, there shouldn't be a picture there. But this is Caleb, and I want to introduce Caleb to all of you. He's our new resident, and this is his wife, Jordan. Um, so if you see them around or if they're doing anything at the church, He's our new, new person on staff. He's a resident. He's going to be primarily working with college student and worship and everything else I ask him to do. So um, he, is, he has been a blessing already, but I wanted to introduce him and you both and then pray for both of you, uh, especially you. Um, the primarily role of Caleb is going to be uh, just he's going to be exploring his call this year. And just seeing if he, where in ministry is he called? Is he called to be working with college students? Is he called to be a worship leader? What, like whatever that is. And so this year is going to take some time and, and, and be with us as a gift and then see what happens afterwards. So, yeah, let me, let me pray for you. Or can you, can you both be here so I can yeah. pray for yes. And you guys are tall, so I'm going to like stand here. Okay. I can crouch. Yeah, cool. Let me, let me pray. Um, God, you are a God who knows all things. You're a God who's in charge of all things. And God, you know exactly Caleb's heart, you know Jordan's heart, and you know exactly the path that they're going to be walking um, this year or the rest of their lives, God. And I pray that uh, this year will be a time where you press in and then you reveal yourself in a way that is just evident. Uh, if you have uh, Caleb do the work that you call him to do, God, make it clear. Make it clear where. Uh, and God, I pray for this year. I pray that this year will be full of you, uh, you just pressing in and, and revealing some dark areas and healing some dark areas, but also just that, that you would just be directing this, directing Caleb. And God, uh, thank you for Caleb. Thank you for Jordan. Thank you that they are here and just doing your work. They are a gift for us, and that, that's a gift from you to us. God, we love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Yeah, be kind to them. That'd be awesome. Um, so now grab your Bible and flip to a little book called Jonah. A little book called Jonah. He's our first minor prophet that we'll be studying in our series through the minor prophets. So we're going to be walking all the way through each of the minor prophets if you did get those, one of those notebooks, you can see a schedule of every minor prophet that we'll study in what order and all that good stuff. 
So as you get there, as you get there, uh, today we're going to be covering one of the most ironic stories in the Bible. And let's start out by looking at some examples of irony. Uh, so like, let's look at this picture. See that? that that's ironic that it went away. No, so there, there it is. So the first picture, that's ironic, right? Like, you just don't, you hope that doesn't happen to you. All right, let's go to the next picture. That's ironic. That's Domino's Pizza, by the way, and they're all tumbled down. That's kind of funny, right? Okay. That's, that's pretty ironic, too. It's really ironic. Um, and so the irony, irony is when the opposite of what you expect from a situation or from someone happens, right? That's, that's what irony is. And our story today is about a, a prophet of God, someone sent by God who runs away from God, right? Like that's ironic. And it's about an evil nation that receives mercy. That is also ironic, and one of the greatest ironies of all, and maybe the richest theme in this book, is the theme that grace, grace is offered to a people who don't deserve grace. And that's us. That's all of us in this room. If God responded to us the way we respond to other people, then none of us would be saved. But God shows us grace while we we're still sinners. God saves us in spite of our rebellion against him. And this story speaks of this reality. And this is the theme that we'll eventually get to. And this is the theme that we're going to camp out in. But first, let's look at some historical context of this little book. So where does Jonah appear in the history of Israel? Instead of going all the way back to Genesis like we did last week, right? Like, we're not going to go start from Genesis and walk all the way to Jonah. Let's start, let's pick up our story with David. So David was the second king of Israel. Um, and if you remember from last week, David had some good moments and then also had some really bad moments. But his life was defined by churning and returning to God. And God promised David, and they made a covenant that through David's lineage would come the Messianic king. And so after that, each time a king appears on the, on, the, uh, on the pages of Scripture, this is the question that they ask is that, is he the one? Is he the Messianic king? And this king would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the previous covenant between God and Abraham. So after David... We have Solomon. Solomon had some good moments, but mostly bad moments as he married hundreds of women for political reasons and through those actions introduced false pagan worship as a norm into Israel. He dies and his son Rehoboam takes over and he follows his dad's footsteps. But power is even more important to him and he tells the people in 1 Kings 12, 14, this. He says, he says, if you think life under my father was hard, get ready for it to be 10 times harder. He disciplined you with whips. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. And so because of his shows of force and power and his heavy tax increase, 10 tribes break off and form the northern state 
right? So the northern state is called Israel, and the capital will eventually be Samaria. The southern state is called Judah, and the capital will be Jerusalem. So if you like a good story, and if you want to see how it unfolds from there, just go read First and Second Kings all about it. Now, since Jonah is a prophet in the northern state, right? So the, he's one of the prophets from the 10 tribes that broke off in the northern state of Israel. Um, let's remember a couple of details about that region. So the, in the northern state, if you remember from last week, the people built two temples to resemble the temple of Solomon. But in those temples, they placed golden calves in front of the in center. And over... Over time, 20 different kings rise to power in Israel, and each time, or the northern state, and each time the unspoken question appears, is he the one? Is he the Messiah? And the king after king, the answer is no. In fact, all 20 kings in the northern state are considered to be one hot mess. They're just awful king after king after king. In the southern state, there are some good kings, but we'll get to that eventually. So after the split, right? So coming back again in history, after the split, who were the prophet during that time? The prophet during the early days in the northern state were Elijah and Elisha. So if you're thinking, like, those are some more popular names, and so you're, you can kind of picture Elijah and Elisha were the prophets. And after their time is done... Here comes Jonah. He was probably discipled by them, by Elijah and Elisha, but we're not sure. We're not fully confident because Scripture doesn't give us that detail. We can just assume that because he's the next prophet. Jonah appears with King Jeroboam II, and who is the 13th king in the northern state. Right? So 12 kings have gone in the northern state. They're all awful. Elijah and Elisha are the ones the prophet, were the prophets during the time. Jonah is now with the 13th king. And Jonah appears in the story in 2 Kings 14. 2 Kings 14. He, Jonah, prophesied that Jeroboam II will win several battles and those victories will provide extra land for the northern state. During this time, during this time, if you actually, if it's in your notebook, you see the, the dates that I put next to several of the pro, uh, prophets, you will see that there's a couple prophets that the dates uh, kind of go together, right? And so Amos and Hosea also prophesied to Jeroboam II, and more frankly, they just straight up criticized him for his wickedness, injustice, and unfaithfulness. And we'll talk about them in the following weeks about what happened there. So that is the historical background of Jonah. And then if we zoom out from the northern state and the southern state just a little bit out, we'll see other nations, right? And if we zoom on, then we see that they had a common enemy during this time, the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire, Assyria was, one of, Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent empires in, in ancient history. Uh, they were known for killing their enemies slowly and mocking them as they died. They had many various ways of doing this. Um, I'm not going to go into detail, but they were very cruel and violent in, in the way they did this. And so one of the reasons they did one reason they killed in this way is that they just wanted to 
send a message to say, don't mess with Assyria. Don't mess with anything that Assyria does. Inside this empire was a city called Nineveh. It was a huge city, 60 miles in circumference. For a city back in the day, this is like New York City. Uh, they had amazing gardens, water dams, parks, great roads, and aqueduct that brought water from the mountains. And around the entire circumference of this enormous city, they had managed to build this massive wall to protect themselves. This is the city that God calls Jonah to confront. That is the historical context of us entering into this book. And normally, normally, as we study uh, each prophet, normally the prophetic books that we'll be studying will contain the words of the prophets, right? So the, the prophet will be telling us something or sharing uh, with the Israel some information. But this book is about the prophet. You see the difference? It's not words of prophet, it's about the prophet. And the genre of the book is written more like a historical narrative. It's a story, a historical story. And the story starts like most prophetic books would normally start with this phrase. So look at verse 1 of Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. What words came to Jonah from Yahweh? Uh, Arise, go to Nineveh, this great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. So God, God calls a Hebrew prophet to a task that's very unique. In fact, we won't see another prophet actually go to another nation to call them out. Usually a Hebrew prophet will call out his king and his nation to repent and return to God. He usually would remind them of the covenant that was established between Abraham and Yahweh. But in this case, it's different, unusual. This is like a Jewish rabbi standing at the streets of Berlin and calling Nazi Germany to repent and change during their ways during World War II. Just for you to kind of get the concept in your head of what's going on here. And as, as I say that, that's just a one way to die, right? That's just a one way to die. So Jonah is called by God to go to the city, but the unexpected, the ironic happens in verse 3 when Jonah goes the other way. He gets on the ship and falls into a deep sleep and, and, and as the ship sails away from Nineveh. And if we're honest, we, we, might, we might be thinking, as I describe all the details of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, maybe you're thinking, I'm with Jonah on the boat. Why would I go to a dangerous city and call them to repentance? That's just a way to die. So I'm with Jonah. I'm on a boat, sleeping, pissed peacefully down, down below the, the deck, right? But listen at this. At the end, we hear from the mouth of Jonah why he ran. He didn't run because he was afraid. Uh, he didn't run because he didn't think God could cause change uh, to the entire city. He ran because he knew God could change the city. He's running because he knows that if God declares something, it will happen. And in chapter 4, just flip a page or maybe just look at chapter 4. After a very short sermon from Jonah, the city of Nineveh repents. They change. And, and, and there we read why Jonah ran from God's call. In chapter 4, verse 1, we read, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. 
And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. So the reason that Jonah got up and ran was not because he was afraid, and it's not because he didn't think that God could cause them to repent, but because God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The reason he got on the boat to go to Tarshish is because he thinks he knows better than God. I don't want this evil nation to receive forgiveness. Uh, They deserve punishment. They are a powerful nation, and they need to be destroyed. And if they're not destroyed, they might come and destroy us one day. So he doesn't want God to save the city. So Jonah concludes that if he doesn't think there's any good reason for God's command, or if he disagrees with God, then he doesn't really need to obey God's command. He doubted God's goodness and wisdom and justice. He probably preached about God's goodness and wisdom and justice, right? He's a prophet of God, but his life didn't match what he preached. So he shakes his fist in the face of God and says, I know what you're asking of me, but I'm going to do what I want to do. So he runs. But then God sends a storm after him. The storm is so severe that the ship is about to break apart. Jonah tells the sailors, it's my fault. Throw me overboard and the storm will stop. The sailors don't want to do that. But eventually they agree and they throw Jonah overboard. By doing this, they are saved and so is Jonah. The storm stops and a big fish swallows Jonah completely and this fish takes Jonah down to the lowest place Jonah has ever been to both spiritually and physically, the bottom of the sea. In that moment, Jonah cries out to God. And all of chapter 2 is him crying to God, asking God to see his brokenness and for God to save him. And God hears him and saves him. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out with, upon the dry land. God then, again, calls Jonah to go for the second time. And I love this detail in this story. I love this detail that he gets called, and the the text actually says he gets called for the second time. I love how God is faithful and kind and patient with Jonah. I love that he gives Jonah another chance to go and do what he's called to do. And this time... Jonah walks into this great city and calls them out. His message is simple. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Uh, We don't know if that was all he said or if this is a summary, but but the result of the message was that the people of Nineveh repent. Our text says they called for a fast and put put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So God, God took a simple message and changed the people's hearts from the greatest of them to the least of them. There's a whole sermon in just those words, but God can and does change hearts. This was the work of God. 
He alone can change anyone. He alone can take someone like Jonah and lead him to repent. He, can, he alone can transform a nation to respond to him. So, in, the light, in light of the story, so Jonah can go home, right? Like, he, he was called to come, preach this message, and he did. They repented. Now he can go home and be, be joyful at home. What we find, what we find in chapter 4, Four is that the mercy of God towards the city of Nineveh displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He was angry. You would think normal reaction would be Jonah returns to the homeland rejoicing. Instead, Jonah is burning with anger. It doesn't make sense at first. Jonah does what the prophets do, right? He, he does what the mo- every prophet will study. He does exactly that. He brings God's message, and the message is repent, and people listen to Jonah. They repent, but when God shows mercy, Jonah is angry, and right away he tells God why he's angry, right? We talked about this already. He basically says, I, know, I knew all along that you wouldn't destroy them. They didn't they didn't throw out their idols, and they're not worshiping you, but they promised to start changing, and, and you showed them compassion? Sure, you're a merciful God, but I disagree with you and the way you extend mercy. So why is Jonah angry? His ang- anger is rooted in national pride. God showed mercy to Nineveh. Now the nation of Israel is in a position of danger. They could be destroyed by the Ninevites, Right? Because as we described earlier, Assyria was a cruel and dangerous nation. And that's where Nineveh was located. And they were known for their destruction and brutality. Jonah bluntly tells God that he cares about his country's survival more than keeping the Ninevites alive. He wants justice to come to the evil nation and not mercy. He could have turned to God, right? Like he could have said, God, you you showed compassion it's hard for me to see this. And maybe he could have fallen on his knees and prayed to God and had a conversation with him how hard that is. But no, he gets angry at God. He could have trusted that God is a God who takes care of him and he's a God who will take care of his nation, but he didn't go to God. He just showed his anger to God. So instead, he's leaning on his own decision that God is making a mistake and he knows what is right. And the right thing is for God to destroy them. So God gives Jonah a little, a little visual metaphor, right? In chapter 4, he makes a plant to grow to give Jonah shade. And the next day, he sends a worm to eat that plant and it withers and dies. So if Jonah was angry before, now he's fuming. He's fuming. He's just so angry. And that the book ends with an odd conversation between God and Jonah. In verse 9, chapter 4, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Yes, nothing is going right. In fact, I'm so angry now that I want to, I'm done. I'm angry enough to die. And then the Lord says, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night, and perished in the night. And should I not, should not I pity Nineveh, Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? 
So Jonah took compassion on this plant. His heart got attached to it. And when the plant dies, it grieved him. It angered him. And God says, you, you have compassion on this plant, but my compassion is for the people. And the people that my compassion falls on are those who don't know their right hand from their left. It's, it's a figure of speech that suggests that the people of Nineveh are spiritually blind. They don't know their right hand from the left. Now, you showing compassion to the plant but you can't show compassion to the people in the city? And the story ends. There's no answer. And because the point of the story is not what, uh, the point is not how, how Jonah will respond, but how you, the reader of the story, will respond. What's happening in your heart as you're hearing this story? The story reveals and exposes all of our hearts. It exposes the worst parts of our hearts. It pushes us to see the God of grace. Because we see that Jonah was not a good prophet. We see that. We, we, there's not much in this text that says Jonah was a good prophet, right? Because we see Jonah is not a good prophet. Jonah fails over and over and over. Jonah leans into his flesh and self-righteousness. He runs from God. He doesn't listen to God until God brings him to the lowest of lows. Only then he listens. But even then, when the city repents, he's still unhappy and angry. And we're just like Jonah. We are just like Jonah. We, all of us, take turns flip-flopping using different strategies in the way we run away from God. One way we run away from God is in deliberate disobedience, rejecting God. We know who God is, right? If you are coming to a, to a church building to, to listen, to worship him, you know who God is. We know that his, what his son accomplished on the cross for us. Yet the flesh, the old man, pokes his ugly head and we have a tendency to run away from God in the same way Jonah runs from God in chapter 1. Now, this kind of running is easy to detect because it leaves marks. People can see it. You can see it. Disobedience rules the day. Selfishness and self-indulgence makes the decisions. In that season, you live as if God is not there. So that's the first way to run from God. It's so easy to look at it. And you can look at your life and you can see where in your life do you run. There's another way to run from God, and it's a lot more subtle. It's a lot more subtle. And it's the way Jonah runs from God in chapter 3 and 4. Uh, from outside looking in, he looks Good. He's walking into this great city to call them out. He is obedient, but his obedience is not coming out of love, but only a way to put God into his debt. His thinking goes something like this. If I do this, then you will do something for me. The obedience is motivated by the expectation of a better life or by love of, for God. Yeah. You might seem religious, you might seem good, but why? Is it simply to pay the due so that God will give you what you want? Success, financial stability, happiness, peaceful relationship, fill in the blank. Why are you obeying God? 
This form of obedience is a form of running from God because what you're running after is not God himself, but the good things that he can provide. It's not about a joyful relationship with the Father, but a joyless, controlling relationship where you are in charge. But when something goes not according to our plan, we know who to blame it on. And it's hard to recognize this form of running. It's very hard to recognize this form of running. Because there's no marks. Others might actually praise you for the way you're obedient. The marks are only in your heart, which no one else can see. And the root of this kind of running is control. It is controlling God through good works. And the story exposes us, right? Because because it exposes us from both sides, running and being completely disobedient to him, or exposes by taking good works and, and obeying them for the wrong motive. The story exposes our heart, that our, that our hearts are broken. And it shows us that we are prone to run. It shows us that the problem in our hearts, whether we are running in disobedience or obedience, and we need a Savior who offers grace and mercy, much like the Savior who offered mercy to the Ninevites. We need a Savior who can transform us by his mercy and grace. And this transformation starts with this realization, I'm just like Jonah, and I tend to run. Because if you're sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, Sergey, that's a good story, but I'm not on either one of those camps, then, then you're very far away from this conversation. Because that the realization that you are just like Jonah is the starting point. And, and I need a God to save me from me. The only way Jonah can see his own sin is by seeing himself as the one who lives under the mercy of God. It's not just the Ninevites who need God's mercy, but Jonah also utterly in need of God's mercy. You see, because if you don't understand that it's the Ninevites and Jonah who need God's mercy, that is why we sit there and point fingers at others on the other gutter and saying, oh, they live this way because it's easy to see their life or it's easy to see a life that's marked by sin. Or the others are sitting going, oh man, they're, so, they're self-righteous. And they're just pointing fingers at each other. But both sides need Jesus. It's the only way we can see our sin is by seeing ourselves as the ones who live under the grace of God. It is realizing that nothing we can do will earn us salvation. It is realizing that salvation comes to us when we admit that we're completely broken and in need of Jesus. And unless we realize this, we'll never understand how God can show mercy to evil people and remain just and faithful. But what we see over and over and over and over and over and over in this story is a God of grace, a God who gives another chance, a God who shows compassion to an evil nation, a God who cares for the unjust, a God who's compassionate to both Jonah and the city of Nineveh, a God who understands no matter how far we lean towards our wickedness, no matter how much of our self-righteousness is at play, God is working in us. In his grace, he's 
pulling us towards himself. He's showing us compassion and love because that's who he is. Jonah was absolutely right when he said this in chapter 4, when he said, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Like, that is the character of God. God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger on your sin. He's abounding in steadfast love. And he's compassionate because because ultimately God sent his son Jesus to this earth to be the true answer for the people like Ninevites who don't know their right from their left, to be the true answer for people like Jonah who are full of self-righteousness, to be the true answer for us because we are like the people of Nineveh and we are like Jonah. The week before Jesus went to the cross, he was standing similar to Jonah outside the city. But instead of feeling rage and anger and sitting there wishing the city would just get destroyed, Jesus wept over the city. He wept over the city. Jonah was angry. Jesus was moved to the point of tears. And a week later, Jesus was on the cross. And he cried out. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They're torturing and killing him. They're denying and betraying him. But the words that come from a loving God are these, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. Just like the people of Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left. He doesn't just show compassion and cry over lost people. No, he dies for us to save us from ourselves. He paid the debt for our sins, purchasing us with his life. That kind of compassion, that kind of love, shows us there's a way out from being spiritually blind like a person from Nineveh Nineveh, and a self-righteous like Jonah. And for all of us in here, we get to rest by faith and gaze at the wonderful work of the cross. And I don't know where where this is hitting you today. I really don't. Uh, I don't know if you, as we're talking through, you find yourself as a guy or, or a gal who's running from God in disobedience or through obedience. I don't know. But God is reminding you that he died for you. And that that is the true motivation of every action. Let me, let me pray for us.